Blog Talk Radio. This is the second time that we are starting a show on April 17th, 2015. Um, This is Don't Let It Go Unheard. I am your host, Amy Peikoff. And with me here in the studio is cartoonist Bosch Faustin. I am going to conclude that we had a snafu the first time because I did not introduce you properly. So I just deserved for that to happen. Is that it? That's exactly it. Uh, Right here we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Tonight I have a variety of issues that I would like to talk about with you. Some of them are centered on presidential candidate Ted Cruz. We will talk about his views on John Rawls, also about marijuana and gay marriage. And the latter two, I think, are going to yield sort of an interesting perspective on how he might handle some of these social issues in a palatable way. So thank you for those of you in the chat room who have hung out and stuck in here. It was my fault that we uh, had our little snafu here. And the reason is when you first create an episode on Blog Talk Radio, the default is that you have a 15-minute episode and you have to go out of your way to change the length of the episode. When I created that episode, it must not, I must not have changed it. So it was all me, but luckily by deleting the old one, I'm able to have the new one. So uh, the kind of logistical... uh, I will link to it. So How do you link to that? Yeah. Just so, just copy the link. Where? So click on it. Oh, oh, it's yeah. not even there. No. Yeah, see, it's not actually showing up in our in okay. our account. So, um, let me see if I can find it. Because I do want to. Sh- I want to spread it. Yeah, I want to go ahead and I want to hear. I want to share this episode around as well. So hopefully, I'm not going to do anything that's going to get me kicked out of anything. Well, uh, don't change it then. Well, no. All I have to do is I'll show you. Actually, what I can do is I can I can tweet it out. I think actually I can tweet it from this. Okay. I can tweet it from here. I think. Let me see if I can do that. No, let's just yeah, let's just keep keep going because. Uh, yeah. No, I'm I'm people sorry. People have been very generous just to to even hang out with us. We yeah. we really appreciate it. Okay, I'm sending it out there on Twitter, so you should be able to find the link to this actual episode. Okay, so we are set. So in terms of housekeeping. Congratulations to Bosch for actually winning the People's Choice Award in the AFDI Muhammad Cartoon Contest. Thanks. So that was made official on Breitbart today. And as I had went through and recited before our first episode was, (laughs) what happened was I got my results in my ALCAT, my allergy testing and there were a few food items that I have been eating on a sometimes daily, definitely frequently, frequently many times a week basis that I'm optimistic that if I cut them out of my diet, I may get a better handle on my Hashimoto's, may be able to kind of put that into remission. So I was excited to get that good news today myself. I was a little bummed because I've been eating almonds and honey and sweet potato and apparently hurting my immune system throughout all that time. But anyway, glad to be ending that. Now, um, go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and you'll see the links to all the stories that we'd like to discuss. Now we are definitely skipping the story on the Success Academy in New York. I put that there mostly for your interest. In, In New York, your tax dollars are supporting charter schools. Charter schools are less regulated but government-supported schools. They have more of a flexible curriculum. They don't have the same curricular you know, constraints that the traditional public schools do. But at the same time, the students are still subjected to the state standardized testing and things like that. So they can be only so good. But some people, this particular Success Academy, I guess it sounds very rigorous, 
Some students were thriving in it. Some people thought it was a real grind and not so good. And you can, you know, use your own judgment. But the point is, is that tax dollars are going to support this. And some people who live in New York, I assume it's expensive enough that they can't even afford to send their kids to private school. Mm-hmm. That's surely the case in California, that it's it's very expensive to both live in Southern California in particular and send your children to a uh, private school. So a lot of people effectively have no choice but to try to find the best option there. Uh, the next story that I did want to talk about was the issue of the Iran deal. And Jerome Brook was talking about the Iran deal this morning on his show. He did a special Friday morning edition because he's traveling a whole lot in the upcoming couple weeks. But he uh, was talking about the Iran deal. And, of course, he was saying it's a terrible idea and that we should not be negotiating with Iran in any way, shape, or form. And there was a caller who called up and was saying, essentially, that couldn't something be achieved with the deal and maybe it's a way of buying time until Iran gets better. And Yaron said, and I tweeted out, uh, when you cut deals with evil regimes, it doesn't buy you anything. Yeah. And uh, you know, some people are saying, well, yeah, what it's really going to do, it's going to buy us annihilation more quickly. You could argue that we're actually helping Iran's nuclear weapons program yes, we by cutting this deal with them because... We're lifting sanctions as part of it. And you know that they're not giving us anything in return. And that's been talked about and talked about. Mark Levin brought up something very interesting about uh, maybe an unintended consequence of this Iran deal. And it was reported over at CNSnews.com. And he said that the Senate has capitulated to Obama and, in effect, has rewritten a provision of the Constitution. And he says there's a tr- something called the Treaty Provision of the Constitution. It's in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 2. And this is what it says. And he's just quoting it. I'm reading from essentially a transcript, a summary of, of Levin's segment on this. Uh, it says, The President shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, provided, and then he he repeats, two-thirds. So it has to be two-thirds of the senators present have to concur. They have a vote. They voted up or voted down. He says it's a supermajority of the senators present. And then he says, well, why did they do that? Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 75 said the following. He said, quote, the history of human conduct does not warrant that exalted opinion of human virtue, which would make it wise in a nation to commit interests of so delicate and momentous a kind, you know, like enabling a country to destroy Israel, right? Um, As those which concern its intercourse with the rest of the world to the sole disposal of a magistrate, i.e. the president, created and circumstanced as would be the president of the United States. So he says, this crucial power must not belong to one man as a president. That's Levin. And it must be shared. And then he quotes more from Hamilton here. Though it would be imprudent to confide in him solely so important a trust about the president, yet it cannot be doubted that his participation would materially add to the safety of the society. It must indeed be clear to a demonstration the joint possession of the power in question by the president and the Senate would afford a greater prospect of security than the separate possession of it by either of them. So it's again, it's this idea of separation of powers being essential to preserving safety. I mean, what is government's number one job to protect individual rights? Our government is founded essentially on that principle, although you know our particular country's founding was a bit inconsistent in that way. But essentially founded on the principle of individual rights. And then it's one thing to say you have this principle, and then it's another thing to say how do you implement it in the best way possible to make sure that the government that you institute is consistent with that principle. We have separation of powers. So Levin is saying it's the dual obligation. And then he says, Bob Corker, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is going around, walking around today, 
uh, by, by a way, rooster. She was, she was a critic of uh, Cruz's defunding effort last year. Mm, just very two or okay. years ago. So he's a political hack. So this is this is what they voted. This is what they voted apparently. Um he says he says the way it's supposed to work is that this is supposed to require more than an executive action. It's supposed to require more than a statute. And he says it certainly requires more than the UN. It requires a treaty. A treaty that the Senate can vote up or down, approve or disapprove. That's the way he says the process is supposed to work. But he says now, in this instance, the Senate has made it so that's not how it's going to work. He says, first of all, he says, you see in the last weeks they've had this framework, right? And you remember in the news it was, oh, they agree on a framework? I he says, frame, I think. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the word work with Obama administration, it just doesn't go along very no. well, right? But he says, you know, there's this phony framework. He says, Obama, our supreme leader, Iran's supreme leader, they're saying two different things about the same framework. He says, our imperial lawless president and their Islamo-Nazi leader, right, this is Levin's terminology, can't even agree on what they supposedly agreed on, so first of all. And he says, second of all, United States Senate with a majority of Republicans, 54 Republicans, and and he's quoting them, you know, as vote us in, vote us in, we'll repeal Obamacare, they didn't, we'll cut spending, they didn't, we'll secure the border, they won't, oh, you know, blah, 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 Um he says the Republican Senate has utterly and completely capitulated. He says, I don't care if it's unanimous or not. He says, the way that the deal is worked, he says, Congress gets to review the deal for 30 days after June 30th. And unless Congress rejects it, requiring 60 votes up front and 67 to override a presidential veto, 60 votes up front to overcome a filibuster, Obama can lift sanctions any time after that 30-day period. So he says, you've totally turned the treaty provision on its head. Instead of requiring two-thirds of the senators present to approve the treaty, he says this bill explicitly with Obama's blessing, he says you need 67 votes to override a presidential veto to undo what Obama has done. Does that make sense? You don't get it? Okay, so let me... I was reading something about, about, about Christie. Okay, so I'll go through it one more time. Sorry, so so the idea is that in the Constitution, in the Constitution, it's supposed to be that Obama comes with a you know, finished deal to the Senate, and that deal is no good unless 67 senators approve of it, you know, assuming that all 100 are there so or whatever, they, right? They change the rules. So they changed the rule. The way that they they have they they have voted in a piece of legislation that actually contradicts the word of until I'll tell you what the piece of so the piece of legislation says Obama makes a deal and the deal stands unless sixty seven percent of them vote against it. And they know that they won't. They know that I mean right they won't because but they actually they passed this procedure in order to give Obama what he wants? Corker and some other hacks? I guess so. I guess and, so. And, and what's their I mean, are they, are, are, are they, are they what, stupid? What did they say? Yeah, well, they are. But what have they said on the record about this? What is Corker? Corker. No, I, you know, I actually don't know. And, and he says, the Republican Senate has no more respect and faith for our Constitution than the Democrat president. They are in it together. Um. Now, the treaty uh, provision, actually, they say he misspoke. It's Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. So he quoted from it, but I guess he cited the the citation incorrectly. Uh, But that is horrible. This idea that in order to have the treaty come into effect, the Constitution requires a a supermajority of the Senate. And they've turned it around. They've turned it around that the only way it can be undone is with a supermajority of Congress. So they had people vote this in this this procedure in order to knock that I out guess and give so. all but the, but, On what grounds, though? I mean, why? But then here's the question, right? I think somebody should file a lawsuit and declare this unconstitutional, which apparently it seems like it is. Yeah. So Levin, I would love to see him spearhead a movement to declare this unconstitutional. Yeah, it, this is really, terrible. And as... Jerome Brooke was talking about earlier today on the show. There is absolutely nothing to be gained at all by making a deal with Iran. No. 
they're it's a terrorist state. They hate us. They want to wipe and, us and, out. And, and Death was, to America. Well, and he was saying, like, even if, suppose you say it's 5% or less is the chance that Iran will succeed in getting a nuclear weapon that could actually make it over here and will actually... You know, Amazing. right? Because he's saying, you know, chances are they might try, and they wouldn't even be able to get it done anyway. But nonetheless, right. we are completely entitled, and we definitely should, and partly for the sake of our ally Israel, make sure that they do not get that weapon, can and we, we should like, certainly not be dealing with them. Can we surreptitiously get them a nuke somehow? You know, get them a nuke, right? <laughs> and it goes up. If right. They, if they try to set off against us or Israel, it goes right back into Iran. I mean, it's like, guys, if you if you try to nuke us, you will nuke yourselves. So, right, right. It'll be called the "Go Nuke Yourselves" nuke. You know? <laughs> Ron in the chat room says a good one. Uh, or actually, it was John. I'm sorry. The chat room is moving so quickly that I mistook the names. So John in the chat room is saying there's nothing to be gained in capitulating to Obama, <laughs> and that's true. Mm-hmm. Just as there's nothing to be gained by dealing with Iran, there's it's nothing to be gained. They Iran sees Obama like a sucker, and Obama sees Republicans like suckers. You know, it's like evil to evil to suckers, fools. As Jerome Brooks said, when you cut deals with evil regimes, it doesn't buy you anything. You cannot anticipate anything good no. coming out of that. Your uh, own show is good, so if you haven't listened to it yet, grab this morning's show that from him. He did a lot on the Fed, uh, which was interesting. And he, I was glad to say he answered my question about is there anything to be gained by auditing the Fed, which is what some candidates are promising that they would really want to do. Uh, What could you gain? And and your own gave a a really good answer. So that's the tease. Now, just to show you that we really are not gaining a single thing at all by dealing with Iran, we have a headline today over at the Hill, and it is Iranian ship convoy moves toward Yemen. Alarming U.S. officials. Now, alarming or surprising? Uh, Not surprising, but they're pretending to be somewhat surprised or alarmed. I don't know what they think that they expected from the Iranian regime. But it says U.S. military officials are concerned that Iran's support for the Houthi rebels in Yemen could spark a confrontation with Saudi Arabia and plunge the region into sectarian war. Iran is sending an armada of seven to nine ships, some with weapons, towards Yemen in a potential attempt to resupply the rebels, according to two U.S. defense officials. They fear that the move could lead to a showdown with U.S. or other members of a Saudi-led coalition. Now, um, at first they just said Saudi, like, oh, it's going to be unstable and they're going to fight with the Saudis. And they say, oh, a showdown with us, with the U.S., now, why would they fight with us if we were at the bargaining table making nice with them, right? But no, I think that they're afraid that, gee, this whole deal could be unraveled, no, right? No, but they, from their perspective, I mean, what, I'll, I'll repeat, what we should be doing to them is bombing them. Right. They've killed Americans. They, this is what they stand for, death to America, 241 American Marines. They kill individual Americans. They, they, they and Saudi Arabia had more suicide bombers in Iraq for years than any other countries. Right. And we have every moral right to bomb them to smithereens. And they know that. So they're, they think we're out to fool them because we're going to nuke them or, or destroy them in their mind, in their six of minds, you know. The, they believe that they can't make a deal with us because they don't trust us because they know wait a minute, they should be bombing us. They're not doing that. So what they're doing is something, you know I mean, something shady. Because they, even they're, they're more rational than Obama. They're more rational. Obama right. actually thinks these right. guys can be trusted and worked with. They know they, want, they, they would nuke us if they could, you know, if, they, if, if they could pull it off. A constant refrain on, on your own show lately is that people never learn, and there is so much From history. Experience. Yeah. There is so much history to tell us that there is absolutely nothing to be gained by trying to make a deal with the Iranians. But what happened when the Chamberlain made a deal with the Hitler? He got bombed right. again and again and again. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if anything, what we're doing is we're helping to ensure. You know, I've asked this before, I think, out on Twitter, which is that if Obama wanted to make sure 
that Iran got a nuclear weapon, would he do anything differently in today's context than he's exactly doing right now? Not a single thing. And in fact, they're probably very upset because this whole Yemen thing might actually mess up their sacred deal that they want to make because they know they shouldn't even be dealing with the Iranians. I mean, the way you deal with them is in war. I mean, look look at this connection here. Obama administration, this is a hot air story. Again, go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com. I've got links to all these stories that I'm talking about. But Obama administration declined to organize a rescue mission for Americans in Yemen. Now, why would you do that? Why would you not? You know, Hillary Clinton says, oh, we bring Americans home. We always bring them home, right? That's that's a principle. Right. No, no, it isn't. Yeah. No, you don't care. The collapse of Yemen into a failed state has trapped between 3,000 and 4,000 American citizens in the country, caught between al-Qaeda and Houthi Islamists, as they call them over at Hot Air, and the military action against both Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Almost until the moment that the Haiti government was put to fight, the White House has insisted that its counterterrorism efforts in Yemen had been a model of success. The final collapse appears to have caught the Obama administration so off guard that it didn't have time to organize an evacuation for Americans still left. Well, a success if you're willing to help the enemy, if that's your goal. Yeah. McClatchy's John Sarakast reports that no rescue plans will come in the immediate future either. And this is via Twitchy. Obama administration so far has declined to organize this mission. They have said they believe it's too dangerous for U.S. military assets to enter Yemeni waters and airspace. They don't want to have a confrontation. Well, and they don't want to have a confrontation with with the Iranians. Yes, and they're like, we're in the middle of this. We could sacrifice Americans. So what? 3,000 to 4,000 U.S. citizens are trapped. And no plan to protect them, save them. Because they're, they're getting in the way of this important historic deal with the devils. The U.S. Embassy there has been closed for months, and the last American troops in the country were evacuated last month. Can you believe? So they say, on the one hand, State Department has warned Americans since at least February 11th to either stay out of Yemen or get out if they were already there. They reissued the warning on April 3rd, but by that time it was far too late. It's unknown how many, how many Americans responded, but no one has to imagine that some figured out that it was time to go quickly, uh, you know, at that point. So, the but the idea that there's absolutely no intention to rescue, and especially when they were, you know, and I love how they talk out of two sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're telling people on February 11th to stay away. On the other hand, all the way up to the beginning of April, they're saying, oh, this is a model of success. You know, our counterterrorism efforts in Yemen are a model of success. So, but, you know, what what are they doing? They're, they don't want to go there and have a conflict. No. They well, want we, to make now, nice with about this. the Iranians. There is a conflict. Americans are there. Iranians want to nuke us. The conflict exists. You can't make it worse. Right. You protect Americans. That's your job. It's not your job is not to make deals with our enemies. It's to protect Americans. And they're so irrational, so evil that that's not what comes naturally. Obama thinks this is more important than anything. And you're right. What it comes down to is he wants to even the playing field. I mean, he wants them to get nukes in the end because he wouldn't be doing anything otherwise. And then Jeb, Jeb Bush has asked about if he would want regime change. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I'll get good question. I'll get I'll get back to you. On right, that. right. Oh yeah, he's a serious candidate. Whereas John Bolton, who I could actually see as the Secretary of State for he would, Ted Cruz, easily he would defend us. He yeah. would defend us in many ways, and he would uh, lay into some of our enemies. You know, some of the ones that are semi-allied. Enemies, our ally enemies. Frenemies, yeah. as you would call them? No, yeah. he would, like uh, the ones that are not as hostile to us. It lays right into them. Do you mind if I criticize Drudge a little bit? Every so often I like to criticize Drudge. There's a story today, you know, again, just to give you another idea of how hopeless it is uh, over there in the Middle East and 
you know, the kind of attraction that Islamic State is having for people who would adopt, you know, a fundamentalist perspective on Islam. There's a male model from Australia who apparently died fighting for Islamic State. Yay, he's dead. Cool. Um, If you fight for Islamic State, I think you should be. But the thing that I want to criticize Drudge for is that Drudge posted a picture on the front page of his... Well, there's only one front page, right? He has one page. But he actually posted a large format picture of this male model, an attractive picture of this guy there. And to me, that is just another instance of putting that Sarnayev horrible murderer person on the cover of Rolling Stone to try to make it some, I mean, because you, maybe that this is not Drudge's intention, but you are romanticizing joining Islamic State or committing acts of jihad when you print, publish, put out there attractive looking pictures of these murderers, these horrible scum. And that is something that Dredge did today. So the reason that I give you the headline is just to let you know. I mean, first of all, you do have people from various walks of life deciding that they're going to go over there and join Islamic State. They're very motivated to do that. But also, just say shame on you, Dredge. I mean, can you imagine publishing an attractive picture of a scumbag? No. It's like Rolling Stone did that with um, Sarnev. And even though, you know, Rolling Stone, they have this scandal. They uh, tried to smear a university with some false rape charges. It was a false story. It just wasn't true. And uh, I guess, I guess, to get some, some semblance that they're okay now, they had uh, teen jihad or some of that, you know, jihad teens or like a serious story that they, that it is legitimate. They have, why would they publish jihad on their magazine anyway? They wouldn't. But again, no. they're trying to make up for that real F up. From uh, what a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, I think the rape thing. Yeah, yeah. It was, and they kept going on that, going. And it was absolute false. It was not true. Now, Ron in the chat room says, "Crazies will be crazies." Pictures on Dredge do not make crazies. If there's anything, you you should never portray these people in any sort of attractive light. No. If there's a scumbag, I like to see. Um, the mugshot, you know, of the yeah. person like at two in the morning when they're looking their absolute worst. This is what you want to see. You don't want to see, oh, look at this attractive person. No, you and want, he joined ISIS. You want their faces yeah. to have the look as if Pigman is walking up to them. That's what kind of face, you know, absolute horror, terror. No, exactly. That's how you want to see them. Exactly. Um, just to give you a little preview of what your own is doing, I went ahead and put a story about the looming Greek financial crisis again. And your own was basically so sick of it this this morning when he was talking about it. It's like every few weeks, Europe is having to figure out what to do about Greece again. Mm. And it's because, didn't they just elect again some socialist, hardcore, hardcore socialist. Communist. So there's no way it's going to get any better. And but what's the idea about helping Greece? I mean, Greece, it's destroying itself. Right. So it's the responsibility of Europe. No, to exactly, help exactly. And so we will save you from yeah. yourself, Greece. So basically, you know, your own. Like some junkie that. You, you yeah, know. but you know, is Greece too big to fail or whatever? But your own was saying. Basically, just let Greece default. Absolutely. Don't give them let any more hell, money. And believe me, they will. Because out of sheer survival, have to start thinking again. The the biggest the biggest problem look, is, as far heritage. as I see it, is all of the antiquities and the museums and stuff full so of awesome. Look at their awesome. heritage. Look at their ideas. I mean, look what they can look what their history is, and they're they don't care clearly. Stuart Hayashi says that he looks super hot at 2 a.m. So you know, go in and grab that mugshot, and then you'll look so much better than. <laughs> than everybody else. Uh, Some people actually maybe look better at 2 a.m. I don't know. But, you know, sometimes I think when people look good at 2 a.m., it's because of the alcohol that the people around them are drinking at 2 a.m., like last call and stuff. That's exactly right. All right, you know, the vision is a little compromised. Kind of happens. But, yeah, there is this, again, looming financial crisis, and Jerome Brook is going over there. They're going to have translated into Greek free market revolution and he's actually thinking he might be able to speak
speak to Greece's top finance guy while he's over there because he had gone to an event where I think that guy moderated a, a debate that your own oh, participated yes, yes, in, yes, right? Yes, and now he's so, one of the uh, yeah. socialists who is right. trying to bring down Greece right, right. with the so, delusions that he's lifting it up. So, I mean, maybe what we'll see in the headlines in the next few weeks is that financial crisis solved because Jerome goes over there (laughs) and tells them what's what. I mean, it'd be nice if somebody over there, you know, they always talk about this thing about hitting rock bottom. Maybe the country is hitting rock bottom and they're actually open to hearing about a free market perspective and ready to actually learn from experience. with, With guys coming in there and telling them the last thing they need to hear, like that guy, the moderator, right? socialist. He's going in there to save it from going fully rock bottom so they can get back on their feet. Right. Now, I had to put this story in from New York Times just because it was so surprising to me that it existed in the New York Times. They say with rising income, sorry, the headline is why Americans don't want to soak the rich. Why Americans mm. don't want to soak the rich. This is over at New York Times. You know, New York Times has sometimes, sometimes. surprised us lately. You right? know why, though? I mean, you do know why. Because they know that they're irrelevant and completely going to go out of business if they don't? And they need some rational pieces sometimes. They Mm -hmm. they have to. So they're talking about rising income inequality. You might expect more and more people to conclude that it's time to soak the rich. But actually, they say that Americans' desire to soak the rich has diminished even as the rich have more wealth available that could theoretically be soaked. And he says it's not just public opinion polls. He says it shows up in the actual policies espoused by candidates for office. In 1980, the highest earning Americans faced a 70% tax on every dollar they earned beyond $215,400. I love how they come up with these numbers, right? Uh, but Which is the equivalent today of 544000 Talk about inflation, right? Over the last decade, by contrast, they say the top marginal rate has ranged between 35% and 39.6%, which is what President Obama has given us. The core question, how much should the government use its power, has been, at the, you know, to redistribute, et cetera, has been at the root of ideological classes, clashes around the world. But American politics in recent years, it's manifested itself in a narrow partisan debate over whether the top marginal rate should be 35% or 39.6. So they're basically saying because it's now only 39.6 instead of 70, hmm. that maybe they don't want to soak the rich. Of course, Obama keeps going on about the fact that the rich aren't paying their fair share. So that seems a little bit ridiculous. No, maybe no, they, just, the rich. they just they just want to grab it you know, in a different way. But... He says the compelling answer might be this. Americans are seeking less redistribution because they have come to their senses. Maybe they realize that a very high tax and generous social spending that prevailed in the middle decades of 20th century came at a high economic cost. Low taxes on the rich encourage greater investment, etc. So the greatest good for the greatest number is to not steal so much. Is that the idea? If you're a liberal, the answer might be more like this. They say Americans have been hoodwinked by conservative politicians and media outlets and have come to view redistribution as a dirty word because they don't recognize the way that it benefits them. This barrage of misinformation has led them to view any redistributive efforts as welfare that goes to somebody else, particularly someone with a different color skin. It's racist, right? Uh, But then they say new research offers a bit more evidence on why it is occurring. They say Americans' attitude towards redistribution are more complex than this. They say they did this experiment. They have an online uh, random sampling of Americans were asked what tax rate they thought appropriate for someone whose annual income had suddenly increased by $250,000 for reasons involving luck. Now, the respondents favored a 1.7 percentage point higher tax rate if the person with the income gain had recently started earning the extra money than if they had been earning it for five years. But they're saying this is more than half the gap the same experiment showed between the tax rate favored by Obama voters and those favored by uh, Romney. So they're saying they favor less redistribution if they believe that the person had already grown accustomed to a higher income. So it's like psychology. 
Rich people who have been rich for a while have gotten used to their money, so it would be unfair to tax them heavily. Now, this bodes well for Hillary Clinton, right? Because they're saying basically they would accept the idea that she was flat broke, right, when they left the office. The Because even though she wasn't anywhere close to flat broke, by her standards, she was flat broke. So maybe they're, you know, liberals and everybody in America, they're trying to accommodate that sort of reasoning. Probably. But they say if you have just gotten rich, you haven't become accustomed to higher levels of after-tax income, so it's not as harmful to raise the taxes. Can you believe this? Yeah. I, I, I really, I mean, this is, so older Americans, you know, they're benefiting from safety net and all this kind of stuff, but nonetheless, they vote less for redistribution. Um, so why don't they want to soak the rich for? They're, they're saying basically who is counted as rich and who is perceived to be benefited from the soaking. So it's nothing moral. No. It's psychological. That's the reason why they don't want to soak. It's some kind of weird psychological thing. We don't want to make a certain class of people unhappy. Um, it is interesting that they're at least talking about the fact that maybe we don't want to soak the rich, that there's right. some substance to it. But um, we do need to, I guess, pretty soon get on to my cruise point, right? Let's get to cruise. Let me see if I can get queue up this clip. Now, this is cruise on the show, Uncommon Knowledge. And what I'm going to have to do, let me turn our little volume down and then I'm going to go ahead and uh, cue this up where I want it to go. Sorry, I'm getting some congestion. I'm wondering if it's my food allergies. Oh. Okay. So at about 29.35 into this, he starts to explain the sort of income inequality point and where he actually brings Rawls into the discussion. So let me cue that up here and get that for you. Okay, there we go. And uh, greatly exaggerated. What I will tell you, though, I think the existential threat facing this country right now is the out-of-control spending and deficits and debt that are threatening the future of our kids and grandkids. And so I have spent a great deal of time talking about what I call opportunity conservatism which is that conservatives should conceptualize and articulate every domestic policy with a laser focus on easing the means of ascent up the economic ladder, that we should view policy through a Rawlsian lens. How does it... Now see, so easing, he's saying two things, easing the means of ascent up the economic ladder, and then he looks through it through a Rawlsian lens. So he's actually saying that those two things are... The same. So let's back up again and look a little bit. Conceptualize and articulate every domestic policy with a laser focus on easing the means of ascent up the economic ladder, that we should view policy through a Rawlsian lens. How does it impact those who are least well off among us? And what we have done a terrible job of doing is explaining that the policies of the left do not work and they systematically hurt those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Let me give you an example, Peter. We just recently saw the State of the Union address, mm -hmm. which was an, instead of reaching out for bipartisan cooperation on pro-growth policies, which I hope he ago. might do, yep. it was unabashed liberalism. It embraced things like cap and trade, like more Obamacare, like raising the minimum wage. And yet, So that's enough. That gives you kind of an idea of the sort of policies that he thinks are harmful. Now... Just to give you a refresher, if you didn't have your you know, philosophy class, your general ed philosophy class in college for a long time, what Rawls said is that we should judge every action, either as moral or immoral, or policies, political policies, from behind the so-called veil of ignorance, that we should try to abstract away from all of the particular characteristics that we are born with. We don't know anything about our talents, who our parents are, what our particular passions are going to be, how we're going to end up in life. We know nothing about this. Just assume you are a some purely rational being without any particular identity beyond that. And then since you know that you might have a chance of 
having no talent at all or maybe being born with certain disabilities or what have you, you know, really poor parents, abusive parents, whatever it is, what would you think the proper policies would be? What would be the policy that a rational being from behind the veil of ignorance would agree to? And Rawls thought that what you would agree to is a scheme of limited redistribution of income, right? And he thinks that what we would do is we it not it wouldn't be a utilitarian idea, but that you would redistribute wealth up until the point that you can no longer make the least well off any better off. So, you know, in terms of that income tax rate, right? You know, would you stop at 39.6 or whatever the top rate is right now? Maybe not. You would say, okay, you know, let's get a bunch of smart economists in the room and let's try to figure out what the effect of further redistributions of wealth would be on the least well off, et cetera. Now, what Cruz is doing here, first of all, the first thing he said was he said, let's focus on whether we are preventing the ascent up the economic ladder of the least well-off. So he's just talking about not putting any barriers in their way. That's not redistribution there. But he does say, you know, he says what the Republicans should get good at doing is, is in effect arguing about liberals' policies and how those liberals' policies do not make the least well-off any better off, and in fact they make their lives worse. But I don't you know, there, I see Cruz looking at that as a rhetorical device, and then he's just kind of offhandedly cited Rawls, and it was maybe a little sloppy, right? I mean, he's he's a smart guy. He is not the egalitarian that Rawls is. And, I mean, if he was, you know, why not have a minimum wage? Certainly there's a certain amount of minimum wage that would still make the least well-off better off, is it true that any minimum wage is never going to make the least well off? You know, so he, the point. I don't think that Cruz actually judges things by that standard across the board. I don't think that he believes, just you know, based on this clip here, that we should redistribute wealth up until the point that you can't make the least wealth any better off. Certainly, a flat tax no. wouldn't wouldn't do no. that now. It might be that he'd be able to argue that any deviation from it would only hurt the least well off. And in fact, you know, if you actually judge things according to what a rational person would have in their self-interest, it would not be to be the recipient of forced redistributions of wealth, right? So there, you know, there is not actually a benefit to anyone to have anybody forced to pay income taxes and all this, but that's a whole different thing. You know, you talk about are there actually conflicts of interest among rational men? And if rational men don't believe in forcing their fellow man to pay for stuff for them, then no, there aren't these conflicts and it's not actually a benefit to those people. But, you know, I, Cruz is probably not going there either. I think he was just merely saying, look, as a rhetorical device, we can go to the liberals who, you know, they purport to be doing well, doing good things for the people who are least well off in society. And he's saying, no, no, in fact, the policies that you are promoting are making the least well off worse off. And I think that's all, I mean, does it seem to you like that's what he's... Yeah, because he, if he was looking at the world through Rawlsian lens, he wouldn't be proposing policies that he does. Yeah, Daniel... He wouldn't be even saying, Iran is one of my all-time heroes. No, Read from Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, it was was definitely, definitely an error. Maybe it was an audience audience thing. Maybe he doesn't understand rules. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But Daniel says, uh, yeah, you cannot concede the horal my the, excuse me the moral high ground the horal my ground <laughs> what is the horal my ground that's that's 8 p.m. Uh, 9 p.m. speak that's 9 p.m. speak yeah. 9 908 p.m. speak yeah. you can't concede the moral high ground to win the argument no you cannot and that is in effect what he would be doing if he started invoking Rawls because Rawls is an egalitarian. He believes in a high level of redistribution of wealth, likely a lot more than what Ted Cruz does believe in. 
So I think he's just meaning that as a rhetorical device. I don't think he's at all a committed Rawlsian. I think he was just using that as a tool to say, okay, you guys, you purport to be doing well for the lead swap, but he should not concede that point. I think he, and, no, and I'm, ho- I'm hoping. Again, right. I've never heard him use you know. If if I ever got the chance to interview him, I well, would just love when to. When you get the chance. When I get the chance, okay. Yeah, he said, listen, what's up, man? I mean, <laughs> Rawlsian land. What are you talking about? Like that. That's right. how you tell him. Are you a Rawlsian? Yeah, what the hell? Do you believe that we should continue to redistribute wealth up until you could no, no longer make the least well off any better off? No, but yeah. that's what I'm saying. Uh, corner him, and then he'll have to get out of this. Well, that's not what I believe. Okay, then don't say that. Because believe me, some people heard that say, oh, oh, that's it. They, they wrote him off. Yeah, and you uh, can't do that with him because again, he's pretty mixed. He's very religious. He's into Iran. Right. You know. Ron is asking me to play this again. Let me give it. the future of our kids and grandkids. Mm-hmm. And so I have spent a great deal of time talking about what I call opportunity conservatism, which is that conservatives should conceptualize and articulate every domestic policy with a laser focus on easing the means of ascent up the economic ladder. That we should view policy through a Rawlsian lens. How does it e- See, those are not the same thing. Easing the means of ascent up yes, the economic right. ladder is not the same as the Rawlsian lens. And what one example that he talks about later when he talks about the minimum wage, he talks about how the minimum wage is going to make it harder for anybody to get an entry-level job. Right. And that's the sort of thing the that he that has in mind. The critique is that it's sloppy right. and maybe ignorant, right. which is not Good. So let, now let's go on to let him explain the Rawlsian lens a tiny bit. We'll, we'll cut it off in a second. Act those who are least well off among us. And what we have done a terrible job of doing is explaining that the policies of the left do not work, and they systematically hurt those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Let me give you an example, Peter. They, they do not work, and they systematically hurt those at the bottom of the economic ladder. So I think for work, he's got something different in mind, right? Now, work is a horrible pragmatic speak, but, you know, whatever. I, I mean, again, I, I want to interview him, and I want to kind of grill him a little bit philosophically, but um, I do not think by any stretch that he is a committed Rawlsian. No, absolutely not. And that is that is a good thing. He clearly, you know, he has he mistakenly said that. I mean out of out of ignorance or he doesn't understand it. He thought he he thinks he might understand it, but it but it doesn't. Now John here in the chat room says he needs to use a Randian lens and I can only agree with that well, wholeheartedly. He, yeah, John. But he leans more towards that than the Rawlsian lens anyway. I mean, by the way he he's even running. Oh yeah. You know, besides besides his uh, extreme religiosity. No, I mean, of any of the candidates out there, he seems to be the closest. So let well, me he's the best. I mean, let me talk about a couple of just a couple of cool things, and I'm not gonna, you know, go too much into the stories, but go ahead and look at the links over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Adam Carolla interviewed Ted Cruz for what about ten minutes or so? Ten to fifteen minutes. Yeah, and it was good. And I Carolla point. says he's in effect endorsing Cruz. He says, "I love me some Cruz." He goes, "I love <laughs> me some Ted Cruz." At the end of the interview. Right. Right. How funny. And then um, another good piece of news: Daniel Greenfield over at French Front Page Magazine is reporting that Ted Cruz is winning over Orthodox Jews. There's a political article. They say he says it's really full of smarm, but there's some tidbits about tidbits. Ted Cruz. Tidbit. Oh, some tidbits. That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it is bad. Yeah. Don't do that again. <laughs> Ted Cruz. Tidbits about Ted Cruz. And he says what changing religious demographics in the Jewish community means. So this is really good if he is starting to win over Orthodox Jews. Now look. It says the more religious they are, the more likely they are to oppose Obama. Now, a whole bunch of Jews just recently went to Obama and said, we want you to remove your veto in the U.N. that's helping to protect Israel or whatever. Basically, we want you to feed Israel to the wolves. A bunch of Jews go. How does this happen? How do a bunch of Jews go to the White House and say feed Israel to the wolves? Decent individual on the right. You know that person hasn't existed. People, right. people see that and say, "Wait a minute! I don't have to vote that pathetic way that I've always been voting." Right. Because there was no alternative. McCain's not alternative. But, but these Jews want, a, yes, want to send Israel that. to the wolves. They're rational. They're liberals first. I think Mark Levin says they're liberals first, and then maybe Jews. But 
you know, those who resent the idea that he appeals is it appeal that Ted Cruz is appealing to, to the religionists. Look, it's a political thing. He wants their vote. He believes what they believe. He's going for the hard sell. I don't mind that. I mean, it's it, it, he's being practical in that sense. He wants the vote. Right. Uh, the evangelicals and others, uh, you know, the the more sincerely religious Christians would not vote for Romney, would not vote for McCain. So it's a practical thing where he'll get religious Americans and then he'll get other ones, you know, the non-religious Americans, right. patriots. And he has a, I think he has a vast appeal that he's putting together. I think he's trying to appeal to Americans across the board, wherever they're coming from. Right. And he happens to be religious. That's why it seems to us like it's, he's you know, extremely religious. I mean, that announcement was, um, someone said something about uh, Rubio, I think something that he's really, I mean, even more religious than, um, t- 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 okay, it was uh, Ari Armstrong. So that Taylor. Rubio's even more yeah. religious? Well, well, he didn't say he's more, but he said that's his main thrust, Right. his religiosity, and then the rest. And if you notice, as you said, his speech... Very, very small and practical and a lot of rhetoric crap. Yes. I mean, real. And it's just so, to me, the car salesman is Well, sleazy. and I've heard that his tax policy is, is no good. And we'll have to yeah. actually analyze that in a yeah. future show and he take was, a look at he it. Was called, I think Glenn Beck was like, uh, no yeah. way. Yeah. So something else. The, uh, the flat and fair tax sounds his, awesome. His uh, extreme attempt to be earnest, also Rubio, that puts me off. You are or you're not. Right. And if you try to do it, then you're really not. Now let's talk about one thing that's kind of come out in with Ted Cruz this week that I'm finding interesting. And there's a story, the headline of which is that Ted Cruz and Rick Santorum answer the same-sex wedding question. And that's over at hotair.com. You can take a look at it. And they even have the audio clip where you can listen to Ted Cruz talk about the gay marriage question with Hugh Hewitt. But the interesting thing is, right, you know, the question is, would you attend a gay wedding? And Cruz never actually answers that question. And I don't even know that it, do do we care whether he actually attends the gay wedding? What we really care about is what he intends to do about the issue of gay marriage as a politician. And that he does talk about and what he says, again, you can go thing, though, go, he, go over to don'tletitgo.com, find the clip, you'll be able to listen to it. He's not being pressured to answer. I mean, well, the guy asked him, I think, twice. Yeah. He refused to. And it's not like he's he's getting away from it, like he's running away from it. He's saying, basically, the question is meant to be gotcha. Right. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. And some fault. And Santorum some says, no, I wouldn't attend a gay wedding. Now, <laughs> now what Cruz says about this, you know, the actual substance of the moral question, I don't he, mind that he, he says, that. He says, first of all, he's never been confronted with the question. He sounded a little awkward with it. And then he said that he is a Christian who believes that it's moral to love everyone. So he basically says, you know, he like live and let live. Yeah, live and well, but you know that he would love the gay people, but maybe he wouldn't necessarily attend. So you get the impression maybe he wouldn't attend the gay wedding, but he still believes in loving homosexuals, even though you know we're all sinners. He got in there a little bit, you know. So there's that. but then in terms of so. in terms of the law, what he was proposing is leaving the issue to the states. So basically whatever a state Which he'll be called on from some conservatives like, oh Well, <laughs> right, right. Because that's not enough for them because yeah. they want a federal definition of marriage. Board, yeah. And so what Cruz seems to be, you know, doing there is saying, okay, this is an issue that traditionally in the Constitution would have been left to the states, and that's how he thinks it should be. So I found that interesting. Now you can draw a parallel. I don't that he didn't answer it because, again, that is not a sincere question to Mark. Ru- no, but yeah. it's not. It's only to try to emphasize the fact. Are you going to go get an abortion? Oh, 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 I mean, you know? come on. No, yeah. no that, that's the whole point of it. It's not. It's not a genuine question. It's not. It's meant to gotcha and allow them to fall. And he said, yeah, well, here's the, here's the situation. And that's what we want to know. We want to know what he would do, personally, whatever, what he would do as a powerful politician in that position. Right. And that's what's important to us. Um, now, uh, 
this there's a parallel to this. I've, I'm actually looking in the chat room here because people are talking about how Ted Cruz is using, uh, you know, when in that other clip having to do with the Rawls ideology, that he's using a horrible methodology for counter arguing. Yes, and it would be it would be great to have him on this show and explain to him basically that in even invoking Rawls, he's conceding the moral premise, et cetera. But um, no, it, it's an important thing. Oh, I know that. Okay. No, no. I mean, look, there are some people who take his religiosity and, and write him off. And all of them are religious. All of them are. All of them are. All of them on the right. They are. And yeah. We need to they're, they're, they're all religious. And then the question is, what are they going to do in government wise. given what their religion? What do they do religion? with their power? This is the choice that we have. Now, um, interesting. This is from Huffington Post. And this is actually dated in February, so it's older news. But it was Ted Cruz voices support for states' right to legalize marijuana. Well, he's so here's pre libertarian. He 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 has said so. It says Ted Cruz has voiced support for the right of states to pursue their own marijuana policies on Thursday, speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference in National Harbor, Maryland, at the annual gathering of conservative activists and Republican Party leaders. Sean Hannity asked Cruz if he thought Colorado's legalization of marijuana was a good idea. And he says, look, I actually think this is a great embodiment, this is Cruz, of what Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy. Now, again, I don't like that he invokes Brandeis, right? Because um, Brandeis, ugh, pragmatist. But, you know, he says, quote, if the citizens of Colorado decide they want to go down that road, that's their prerogative. I personally don't agree with it, but that's their right End quote. Now, another social issue where they say, leave it to the states. The question is, is this going to be his approach also on abortion? Wouldn't it be good if, you know, he decided, yes, I'm opposed to abortion and I would want the federal government to allow a state to outlaw abortion? Now, I I disagree with that myself. I mean, right, I am firmly in the, you know, pro-choice camp with that. But if you're talking about voting for a Republican and wondering whether you are really, really paving that way towards a theocracy, right. you would be doing it less with someone who was a principled sort of federalist state rights kind of person who said, hey, on these touchy social issues, and here we've got gay marriage, we've got marijuana, we're going to leave it up to the states to decide, and that's part of what it means to be a federal government. We have only two minutes left. Wow. No, that's not true. Is it? I can't believe we have only two minutes left. Anyway, so to me, that is very hopeful, and I think it means that a lot of us can kind well, of he's given us a good be sign. happier about supporting Ted Cruz. He's given us a good sign of what he might do in, when in power. Yeah. And as far as I know, I don't know him to be a lion or rat like Obama. Obama lied his ass for years, and then he contradicted everything that he said, more or less. Ted Cruz hasn't yet, and I don't think he will. He won't be perfect again, but you know, this idea that he's a, he's a theocrat, that's, that's, that's embarrassing, really. It sounds like he's a states' rights guy, yeah. that he is really going to you know, sort of employ the idea of the feds Staying out of, of certain things. Look, and he mostly lives in the Let real his home world. state of Texas outlaw things, I he guess, from lives, a theocratic he perspective. Lives in the real world. And that's not good. I'm not saying it's great, but I'm saying it's better than if he wanted to have a federal piece of legislation declaring that life, you know, that life begins at conception, like Rand Paul does. That's a whole different ball game, in my book. Um, there is a video you can check out. Students declare that they're ready for Hillary to be president. Why? Only because she is a woman. So go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. You can find that. And there's two more things that you can find there. One is a link to the Batman versus Superman trailer. And we'll be talking more about that, I guess, in the coming weeks. And also the Star Wars trailer you can find uh, in Facebook. The Batman versus Superman is decidedly darker than is the Star Wars trailer, but we'll be talking more about those in the weeks ahead. We are really sorry about the mistake we had made in the earlier incarnation of this show. (laughs) We really thank you, those of you who stuck around and stuck with us and went for round two. Uh, those of you listening to the podcast, you are blissfully unaware of the technical difficulties we had earlier, but thank you for listening as well. You did a, um, you did a good job getting back. 
Leave us comments, don'tletitgo.com. Continue the discussion. Share the show with your friends. Watch Daredevil. Leave a donation. Leave a donation to the Butter Coffee Fund. I have been cleared for both coffee and butter now on my allergy exam. I'm very happy about that. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. And we will talk to you actually one week from tonight is the next show. We will not be here Tuesday, but we'll be here one week from tonight, 8 p.m. Pacific time. Have a good night, all. Take care. Take care.